1: And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places.
2: We stand on a lonely windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment... The air was dense with smoke and the cries of men and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June 1944, 225 Rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs.
3: There Ronald Reagan stood on a quiet overcast morning in a time of peace. It was Wednesday, June 6th, 1984, 40 years to the day that Operation Overlord was launched against Adolf Hitler's Fortress Europe in what Winston Churchill had called the most difficult and complicated operation that has ever taken place.
2: Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American Rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one Ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a Ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, The Rangers pulled themselves over the top and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. Behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the Ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war.
3: I'm John Meacham. And this is It Was Said, Episode 6, Reagan Speaks on the 40th Anniversary of D-Day.
2: In a world of nausea and fear and tension, the trip to the beaches begins. At the spear tip of this historic seaborne attack are some 3,000 men, American, British, and Canadian troops, who will hit in the first wave. They push against the gates of fortress Europe, and the fates of war and freedom await their performance.
3: Four decades before, as the climactic act of the war in Europe had begun on these beaches, The man who now commanded the world's attention had been more than 5,000 miles away in Culver City, California. An officer in the US Army Air Force assigned to the first motion picture unit, Ronald Reagan had made training films and helped publicize the war effort. Now, however, Reagan was president of the United States, leading a nation that was emerging from a difficult recession amid a presidential election. The previous 20 years of American life had been tumultuous and occasionally depleting. The era had been shaped by the strife over the war in Vietnam, by the white backlash against historic and long-overdue civil rights legislation, by Watergate, by inflation, by the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, by enduring fears of nuclear war, and by an apparent loss of national confidence.
4: The United States in 1984 had been feeling sorry for itself for a long time. In the late 70s, with stagflation and the failed Iranian hostage crisis, and into the early 80s, we had a recession, and the country was feeling down on itself and that we couldn't do anything right.
3: This is the historian Evan Thomas.
4: And Reagan had the good sense to see that we needed to feel better about ourselves. He's running for re-election in 1984. His campaign slogan is, Morning in America. He wants us to feel a renewed sense of American greatness.
2: It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago?
3: The Reagan who had come to France to commemorate the anniversary of the D-Day landings was devoted to a particular project. The assertion that the United States, under his leadership, was back, prosperous, confident, and strong. And the ceremonies at Normandy offered him the perfect stage on which to make that case.
4: What better way to do that than to remind us of how great Americans were on that day in June 1944, when a couple of hundred young American men climbed straight up a cliff into the face of German gunfire and took that hill?
3: To engage with Reagan's Normandy speech is to watch a masterful public performer at the height of his powers, a former actor who understood the capacity of words and of images to shape the thoughts and stir the emotions of his audience. Reagan had learned how to act and dream early on. In the winter of 1922, when young Dutch Reagan was 11 years old, he found his father Jack passed out drunk on the front porch. He was drunk, dead to the world, Ronald Reagan recalled. The boy's first instinct was to rearrange reality, to pretend he wasn't there. Something else, though, began to form in Reagan's heart on that cold evening. He realized that it was time to take charge. Later, he understood this was his first moment of accepting responsibility. So instead of stepping over Jack and slipping into bed, Reagan saved his dad. He recalled, I bent over him, smelling the sharp odor of whiskey from the speakeasy. I got a fistful of his overcoat. Opening the door, I managed to drag him inside and get him to bed. And everything worked out, at least in Reagan's memory. In a few days, he was the bluff-hardy man I knew and loved and will always remember, Reagan recalled. In a few days. That must have been some bender. And though Reagan handled the crisis with the grace of a grown-up, he was still a little boy, one who could not help but be scared by the sight of his prostrate father. The drinking was a secret to be kept, a kind of trapdoor in the family's life. Reagan could never be sure when Jack would be engaging and hearty, or when he would be flat on his back, with snow in his hair. Confronted by a chaotic childhood, Reagan sought refuge in a world of legendary exploits. This is not uncommon in the boyhoods of great men. Winston Churchill, long and painfully ignored by his parents, constructed an elaborate imaginary life as he grew up. The future British Prime Minister collected thousands of toy soldiers and devoured stories of great English military heroes. The young Reagan voraciously read Edgar Rice Burroughs's Tales of Adventure in Outer Space.
2: I have no recollection of ever learning to read. But one night when I was 5 years old, I was lying on the living room floor with a newspaper and my father came in and he said, "What are you doing?" and I said, "We're well, reading the paper." And he thought I was being smart Alec. And he said, "Well, go ahead, read me something." And I did. And the next thing I knew, he was out on the front porch yelling for the neighbors.
3: Seeking order, Reagan also joined his mother's church, the Disciples of Christ. There were physical as well as psychological reasons for his dreaminess. Until high school, Reagan lived with a terrible, undiagnosed case of nearsightedness. So bad, in fact, that he had taught himself to act his way through most scenes in life. I sat in the front row at school and still could not read the blackboard, Reagan recalled. I bluffed my lessons and got fairly good marks, considering. Always competitive, he chose football over baseball and remembered the pleasure he found in exerting force. On the gridiron, there was no invisible little ball, just another guy to grab or knock down, and it didn't matter if his face was blurred. Then, one day in the car, bothered that his brother Neil could read the road signs and he could not, Reagan tried his mother's glasses. He recalled, Putting them on, I suddenly saw a glorious, sharply outlined world jump into focus and shouted with delight. I was astounded to find out that trees had sharply defined separate leaves, houses had a definite texture, and hills really made a clear silhouette against the sky. But he had dwelled for a long time in his own universe, where his thoughts and feelings were the only crisply defined realities. Everything outside himself parents, teachers, friends, had been shrouded and gauzy. Although he loves people, Nancy Davis Reagan would say decades later, he often seems remote, and he doesn't let anybody get too close. There's a wall around him. He lets me come closer than anyone else. But there are times when even I feel that barrier. Yet Reagan was not an angry man. Rather than rail against life's unfairness, he would recast unpleasant truths in a more flattering light. His mother had taught him how. Looking back, I know that we live in poverty or pretty close to it
2: all the time. I think my mother, a lesson that was hammered over and over again, and as I grew up, I really began to realize, and that is, when there was a great disappointment, something went wrong, she would say to us, look, Everything happens for a reason, and for the best.
3: A devout woman, Nell Reagan, must have been severely disappointed in her alcoholic husband. But she tried her best to put a cheerful face on the darkest of things, beginning with Jack's addiction. Ronald Reagan recalled, Like my mother, I came to dread those days when he'd take the first drink. Although he wasn't the kind of alcoholic who was abusive to his wife or children, He could be pretty surly, and my brother and I heard a lot of cursing when mother went after him for his drinking. In front of the boys though, Nell insisted that they forgive their father. Nell always looked for and found the goodness in people, Reagan recalled. Put another way, she made the best of the worst, essentially acting her way through difficult situations. Some would call that denial, others stoicism. Whatever it was, her son inherited it.
5: Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hello slash sale. That's hello slash sale, and book your free consult today.
6: It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina. I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The role of the theater in his life was a gift from his mother as well. She was an organizer of readings and performances in Illinois. She urged him to declaim a speech one night before the local crowd, but the shy Dutch was reluctant. Another streak in his character, his competitiveness, pushed him forward. Reagan recalled, My brother had already given several and had been a hit, so he would do it too. Summoning up my courage, I walked up to the stage that night, cleared my throat, and made my theatrical debut. I don't remember what I said, but I'll never forget the response. People laughed and applauded. Suddenly, a new world opened before him.
2: My name is Ronald Reagan. A few months ago, I was a sports announcer on a radio station in Des Moines, Iowa. One day I ran into one of these movie talent scouts. I think I caught him off guard because the next thing I knew I was taking a screen test for Warner Brothers in Hollywood. So here I am.
3: On stage, Jack's drinking didn't matter, and his shyness born of nearsightedness and his family's frequent moves melted away in the warmth of the audience's approval. Reagan recalled, That was a new experience for me, and I liked it. For a kid suffering childhood pangs of insecurity, the applause was music. He would spend the rest of his long life seeking to hear just those notes. First in Hollywood, and then from Orange County to Red Square. And now at Normandy.
7: Ronald Reagan on the 40th anniversary of D-Day at those cliffs gave a marvelous performance. The people around him knew that If he gave a great speech and there were great images, those could be used in campaign commercials, as indeed they were.
3: This is the historian, Michael Beschloss.
7: I think the downside of this was that people were so aware that Reagan was an actor and that he had these people who were very good at staging events and that he had terrific speech writers that I would argue that when FDR, by and large, gave a speech, people would say, I really agree with him, he really means it. And in Reagan's case, they would too often say, what a great performance.
3: Ronald Reagan was well served by a staff that understood the visual vernacular of television. The maestro was his advisor, Michael Deaver, who had made sure the D-Day events would have maximum impact. As reported by Reagan biographer and longtime Washington Post reporter Lou Cannon, According to the original schedule prepared for June 6, President François Mitterrand was to welcome Reagan to Omaha Beach at a French-American ceremony scheduled to begin at 4 p.m., or 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, too late for the morning television shows in the eastern United States. This would have conceded the morning news shows to coverage of the June 5 Democratic presidential primary in California. Deaver wanted Reagan to speak shortly after 7 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time at pointe de Hoc, where the French had preserved the visual memory of war by leaving gaping bomb craters and rusting barbed wire that had been removed from other beaches in Normandy. The French resisted the schedule change, arguing that Reagan should be welcomed by Mitterrand before he made a speech on French soil. When the advance men were unable to resolve the dispute, Deaver summoned France's ambassador to the United States to the White House. The ambassador got the message, and Durand personally approved the change in schedule that allowed Reagan star billing at Normandy.
7: This is someone who, during his entire presence, he was trying to show grand moments in which the United States had made a difference to the world. What better moment for that than D-Day, one of the most important days of the 20th century, had it gone badly, conceivably, the Allies might have lost World War II, that's how important it was.
3: And so the President of the United States took center stage.
2: Forty summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right, faith that they fought for all humanity, Faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge, and pray God we have not lost it, that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. You were here to liberate, not to conquer, and so you and those others did not doubt your cause. You all knew that some things are worth dying for, one's country is worth dying for and democracy is worth dying for because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised by man all of you loved liberty all of you were willing to fight tyranny and you knew the people of your countries were behind you
3: as cannon observed many of the rangers wept when they heard these words a number of us in the press corps wept with them. Even the Secret Service agents, trained to watch for danger instead of listening to presidential speeches, did not disguise their feelings.
5: Selling a little or a lot?
2: The Americans who fought here that morning new word of the invasion was spreading through the darkness back home. They fought, or felt in their hearts, though they couldn't know, in fact, that in Georgia, they were filling the churches at 4 a.m. In Kansas, they were kneeling on their porches and praying. And in Philadelphia, they were ringing the Liberty Bell. Something else helped the men of D-Day their rock-hard belief that Providence would have a great hand in the events that would unfold here, that God was an ally in this great cause. And so, the night before the invasion, when Colonel Wolverton asked his parachute troops to kneel with him in prayer, he told them, do not bow your heads, but look up so you can see God and ask his blessing in what we are about to do. These are the things that impelled them. These are the things that shaped the unity of the Allies.
3: The text had been written by Peggy Noonan, then a young White House speechwriter.
0: Peggy Noonan always said when she wrote for Ronald Reagan, she was told that you were always positive. You know, Instead of writing, we will not do this, you would write, we must do this, we must succeed. This is the political commentator and former congressman, Joe Scarborough. Reagan's secret was finding the positive, making everything that he said sound like it was a 90-10 proposition and framing it in such a way that it was impossible to be against him. And he was conservative ideologically. He was moderate temperamentally and he won the day because of that positive uplifting spirit we you know we we think about his victory in 1984 where he won 49 states and people talk about mourning in america well unemployment was twice as high as it is right now but reagan made people believe again and Reagan was a perfect vessel for Americans to pour their hopes and dreams and optimism into, and he knew how to play the role.
3: The language was at once elevated and personal, universal and particular.
0: I think I
2: know what you may be thinking right now, thinking we were just part of a bigger effort. Everyone was brave that day. Well, everyone was. Do you remember the story of Bill Millen of the 51st Highlanders? 40 years ago today, British troops were pinned down near a bridge waiting desperately for help. Suddenly they heard the sound of bagpipes and some thought they were dreaming. Well, they weren't. They looked up and saw Bill Millen with his bagpipes leading the reinforcements and ignoring the smack of the bullets into the ground around him. Lord Lovett was with him, Lord Lovett of Scotland, who calmly announced when he got to the bridge, sorry, I'm a few minutes late as if he'd been delayed by a traffic jam when in truth he'd just come from the bloody fighting on sword beach which he and his men had just taken
3: great speeches draw on the past to shape the present and reagan's normandy effort did just that the leading allied powers britain the united states and the soviet union had cracked up in the aftermath of world war ii reagan was an old cold warrior a dedicated anti-communist and he used the D-Day commemoration to evoke old ties of alliance in the cause of unfolding peace.
2: When the war was over, there were lives to be rebuilt and governments to be returned to the people. There were nations to be reborn. Above all, there was a new peace to be assured. These were huge and daunting tasks, but the Allies summoned strength from the faith, belief, loyalty, and love of those who fell here. They rebuilt a new Europe together. In spite of our great efforts and successes, not all that followed the end of the war was happier planned. Some liberated countries were lost. The great sadness of this loss echoes down to our own time in the streets of Warsaw, Prague, and East Berlin. The Soviet troops that came to the center of this continent did not leave when peace came. They're still there, uninvited, unwanted, unyielding, almost 40 years after the war. Because of this, Allied forces still stand on this continent. Today, as 40 years ago, our armies are here for only one purpose, to protect and defend democracy. The only territories we hold are memorials like this one and graveyards where our heroes rest.
3: The president who stood on the former battlefield had never experienced combat. He had rather seen it in footage sent back to Hollywood. Reagan recalled, and I would watch as closely as I could, knowing this was real and they were under fire.
2: We in America, have learned bitter lessons from two world wars. It is better to be here ready to protect the peace than to take blind shelter across the sea, rushing to respond only after freedom is lost. We've learned that isolationism never was and never will be an acceptable response to tyrannical governments with expansionist intent. But we try always to be prepared for peace, prepared to deter aggression, prepared to negotiate the reduction of arms and yes, prepared to reach out again in the spirit of reconciliation. In truth, there is no reconciliation we would welcome more than a reconciliation with the Soviet Union, so together we can lessen the risk of war now and forever.
3: Reagan was not always notably adept at distinguishing between reality and myth, between history and memory. As Luke Cannon wrote, long before he became president, he was notorious for gaffes and oddball statistics. The most outlandish of these tended to be flights of fancy that were loosely based on stories or statistics he had taken from human events, Reader's Digest, or the local newspaper, and lodged in his mental card file. He had a powerful but indiscriminate memory that rarely distinguished between the actual and the apocryphal. William F. Buckley Jr. once told Cannon, People say he is a simpleton, which isn't quite right, and when they realize he isn't, they're apt to go to the other end of the spectrum and compare him to Socrates, which doesn't work either. Reagan was what he was, a skilled performer with a vivid imagination. Once something was lodged in his mind, it was nearly impossible to dislodge it, and at some level, he believed that his war had been spent far from home, rather than where it was spent, at home. By 1984, this hardly mattered. His task was to move a people, to reassure them that the old truths that had guided the Allies in World War II were still operative truths. To secure his place as the president, who would defend those values anew. Five months hence, Ronald Reagan would do something unthinkable in our current climate. He would carry 49 of 50 states in a general election against Walter Mondale. The debate over the Reagan years is live and ongoing, as it should be. A man who campaigned against the efficacy of the public sector is sometimes seen as being an author of the populist distrust of institutions that afflicts 21st century America. Let the debate go on. History, as it has been said, is an argument without end. But there can be no convincing argument that the Reagan who spoke at Normandy nearly 40 years ago did not know what he was doing and did it well. He told a story. He linked past and present. And he pointed to the future.
2: We're bound today by what bound us 40 years ago. The same loyalties, traditions, and beliefs. We're bound by reality. The strength of America's allies is vital to the United States and the American security guarantee is essential to the continued freedom of Europe's democracies. We were with you then, we're with you now. Your hopes are our hopes, and your destiny is our destiny. Here in this place, where the West held together, let us make a vow to our dead. Let us show them by our actions that we understand what they died for. Let our actions say to them the words for which Matthew Ridgway listened. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee.
3: the next episode of It Was Said Season 2, Republican Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Maine breaks with partisan orthodoxy to take a stand against the demagoguery of Joseph McCarthy. Thank you for listening to It Was Said Season 2, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. In association with the History Channel Executive produced by me, John Meacham And Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13 Written and narrated by me, John Meacham Production led by Margot Gray Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil Production coordination, research, support, and consultation By Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador Marketing, PR, Sales, Operations, and Business Affairs, led by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Centrolin, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Creative Consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey Company.
7: We're miles apart But safe in dreams You're running far Be young and dark will always be One of their own Shine your light, shine your light over me All of my fears All are gone, gone they're gone, gone And it don't bother
2: me It
0: don't bother me, don't bother me It's
7: not just me. to be run fall on the Find a love. Your light for me, my only son. You'll always shine.
6: Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a four eyes media production presented by odyssey you can get it on the odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts